Yes, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. I am aware that this weekend is July 4th weekend, which means that many of you may be either taking some time off of work or having a vacation or staycation. And that may mean that uh, today did not follow a normal routine for you. And uh, that's understandable. If, uh, if I would also understand, though, if at this time, uh, when we reflect on um, thoughts from, for example, Maya Angelou, who says, none of us are free until all of us are free, that maybe you, uh, maybe July 4th is hitting you a little bit different. Um, this weekend that it has in years past. And maybe seeing the image of the American flag is um, raising a level of discomfort in you. Um, to which I would say, um, yes, let's, let's hold that tension um, with me, if you will, for the next 20 minutes or so and lean into it because I think it will be helpful for us uh, in engaging with the text that we're going to cover today. Uh, I also realized that um, if you are uh, diverging from your normal routine this weekend, then that means you may not actually be catching this live stream live, uh, in which case you'll be watching it um, sometime probably during the week, um, maybe uh, during uh, a break or something from work and on your own time on YouTube. And if your own personal time on YouTube is anything like mine, maybe you'll catch uh, this uh, video of Spark uh, in between videos of Steph Curry beating the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, and that, that's actually two different takes on the same game, by the way. That's that's what I do uh, on YouTube. But um, the the text today that we are covering uh, is in the Gospel of Luke. We're still towards the beginning of, of the Gospel uh, in, the, in the early part. And we have come to a part in the, the text where, um, where we'll read what's often called Mary's song. So that's the song that the mother of Jesus sings. And just to give you a quick reminder of the setup. So very early in the narrative, an angel comes to Mary and tells her that she is going to be pregnant, and then that baby will be the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. And um, so Mary heeds that message, and uh, she also learns that uh, her relative Elizabeth is pregnant with the the boy who will become John the Baptist, who's a partner of Jesus in their, their kingdom work. And Mary and Elizabeth meet, Elizabeth blesses Mary, and then Mary sings this song. And this is the song that we're going to cover in, uh, in our lesson today. So here is, here's the entirety of that song. So in Luke 1, starting in verse 46, Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for God has been mindful of the humble state of God's servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is God's name. God's mercy extends to those who fear God from generation to generation. 
God has performed mighty deeds with God's arm. God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. God has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. God has helped God's servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as God promised our ancestors. Now, in order to understand the full weight of this song that Mary sings, I think it'll actually be helpful to visit some of the songs that other women in Mary's own history, in Israel's history, sing, because they are actually tightly interwoven. And when we let all of those voices come together, I think that it helps us a lot um, in, in understanding what, what Mary is, is talking about in this particular passage. So the, the three other women's voices in particular, who I want to highlight uh, today in, in our time together, are the voices of Miriam, Deborah, and Hannah. So we will go through each of these that represent different eras uh, in Israel's history, but nevertheless, each of them has a song that we have recorded in scripture. So first, let's start with Mary's namesake, Miriam. So to give you context on uh, who Miriam is. So way back in the beginning of Israel's history at the birth of its nation, Mary, uh, Miriam sorry, is uh, Moses's sister uh, and um, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam as a sibling set together make up the leaders of Israel. And uh, right after Israel uh, is able to escape from oppressive slavery and captivity in Egypt. They, they find themselves in freedom uh, on the other side of captivity and their enemy, Egypt, uh, has been destroyed. Um, they, they ended up destroyed in their, in their path of chasing down Israel when they escaped. And when that happens, um, when, they, when they reach this freedom, uh, Miriam has a song recorded uh, in the Torah uh, that, um, that celebrates this victory. So here is how Miriam's song goes in Exodus. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for the Lord is highly exalted. Both horse and driver the Lord has hurled into the sea. So there is two parts to it, right? One is this enormous celebration of God delivering Israel. And there's also a celebration and an acknowledgement that God has destroyed God's enemies. In this case, it was, it was the e Egyptian powers that were hurled into the sea and, and destroyed in their process. And if one half of that makes perfect sense to you and the other half kind of makes you uncomfortable. Like, how is it that they can uh, celebrate or revel in the, the destruction of their enemies? I would ask you to hold on to that tension too, because it's, I think it's going to be important for us to deal with this, this way that um, the women we're talking about today celebrate um, that, that is important not to overlook. So that is the song that Mary sings, and or that Miriam sings. And I think there's a there's another song that uh, comes from Deborah, uh, who is a judge in Israel. And this happens um, in in a in an era that that comes after Miriam's time. 
So once Israel is able to travel from captivity uh, and enter the, the promised land and they occupy Israel, but in a transitionary period before they have a consolidated monarchy, they have a more like an ad hoc leadership that basically different people rise up at different times to address various threats that come upon Israel. And those, those leaders that rise up are called judges. And in Judges chapter four and five, we're introduced to one of those judges in a, quite a dramatic story of deliverance for Israel, um, a story that honestly has better female representation than most of the movies I've seen in the last 20 years. And in an otherwise bleak book, Judges follows this pattern of Israel uh, of finding themselves, even though they're they're in their own land, uh, being uh, horribly oppressed by foreign powers and kingdoms. And then a judge will rise up and deliver them only for them to find themselves repeating that cycle. Uh, in, that, in that bleak cycle, Deborah as a judge actually shines as, uh, as one of the, the highlights uh, of those narratives of, for a woman who has an unambiguously uh, powerful victory and did God's will uh, through, through the whole thing. And uh, Deborah is also unique among judges because she is both a prophet and a judge. So typical woman doing twice the work of a man uh, for the same level of credit. And the way the, the key part of our narrative goes for today is that um, Deborah uh, empowers Israel to go to battle um, uh, against the Canaanites to for them to be be relieved of their their uh, oppression uh, under the Canaanites and um, the the Canaanite army is uh, led by a commander named Sisera so uh, Israel uh, engages in battle with Sisera and his army and Sisera is losing and he flees to what he presumes is friendly territory to a household in friendly territory so when he enters this household a woman named Jael greets him and she asks him to come in she gives him some milk she gives him a blanket and she says he can rest he sleeps there and then while he is sleeping she grabs a tent peg and rams it through his forehead, killing the commander of the army. Israel wins. That's how that goes. And in fact, Deborah sings a song of celebration. It's, it's quite long. It takes up the entire chapter of, uh, of Judges 5. And in that song, uh, she um, reflects on what I just told you in graphic detail. And not only that, after she sings that, she then uh, proceeds to sing a, the rest of the song from the perspective of Sisera's mother. And she imagines Sisera's mother looking out into the distance, wondering why her son is so late in coming back. And she's thinking, maybe he's so late because it's taking a lot of time to divide up the spoils from victory all the while not knowing that her son has been brutally murdered. That is some next level trash talk going on in that story. Here, is, uh, here are some parts of how Deborah sings that song. 
She opens it by saying uh, towards the beginning, hear this, you kings, listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. Later, she says, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took winding paths. In other words, it was a, a lawless time. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. She later says, kings came, they fought. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. And then towards the end, she uh, capstones the song by saying, so may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. So again, there's this pattern here where Israel celebrates being relieved from oppression, but also celebrates God's wrath being poured out on God's enemies. These uh, women in their, in their leadership are able to, to recognize that the, the battles that they're fighting are against forces that are, that are far bigger and far more powerful than just what they see with their eyes and that God is on their side and God is marshalling the heavens um, for them in order to win these battles. And it's also, you know, a pretty, uh, bleak statement or a pretty severe statement on on um, what happens to God's enemies. But um, there's a couple things that I think sh we should keep in mind when we think about this kind of, of talk about God pouring out God's wrath on enemies. Uh, one is that we have to acknowledge that this is the the language that God's people used um, in those times and in those places to describe God's victories, and that um, that though there is a lot of violence that that. Uh, the Israelites used in order to accomplish their goals, that that's not necessarily the final word on how God um, uses uh, violence or does not use violence in order to accomplish God's will, and that we would look to Jesus to be our, our final answer on that. But we, we also need to acknowledge that there there is a very real element of God's wrath that is painful and uncomfortable. And it's telling that it is when Israel is oppressed that they can appreciate God's wrath the most. And there is a, a voice that comes from those who are oppressed when they lament injustices in the world and look forward to when God makes things right that allows us to really appreciate um, how significant God's wrath is for the process of making things right. Uh, theologian James Cone uh, describes it really well in putting it in perspective, especially from the perspective of the oppressor when he says, is it possible to understand what God's love means for the oppressed without making wrath an essential ingredient of that love? What could love possibly mean in a racist society except the righteous condemnation of everything racist? A God without wrath does not plan to do too much liberating, for the two concepts belong together. A God minus wrath seems to be a God who is basically not against anything. You see how when, when we listen to the voices of the oppressed and let them sing their songs, we gain a much better appreciation for what God is saying uh, through the songs that, that we read about um, in the Bible. So moving forward, there's uh, one more song that I think we should reflect on. 
to help us get a better understanding of what Mary is singing about uh, in her own song um, when she's pregnant with Jesus. And that comes from the woman Hannah. So this story takes place in the context of Israel's shift from this era of judges that we just talked about towards a, a united kingdom and a monarchy. And in this transition process, the, the book of Samuel records a prayer that Hannah sings. Now, there's an immediate context to the story where Hannah is a woman, a faithful Israelite, who uh, is struggling with infertility. She wants to have a baby, but uh, she can't. And in the ancient world, infertility was, was seen as completely a woman's problem. And so she finds herself uh, in that ancient world uh, with that plight. And she prays a prayer or a song. She sings a song that, um, that reflects her celebration when she finds out that uh, she, she is going to have a baby, that, that she is pregnant. And um, when you, at first blush, when you read uh, the song, you may think that this is a song of a woman celebrating uh, the fact that she was struggling to have a baby and then uh, she became pregnant. But you quickly realize in listening to the song itself that she sees this pregnancy amidst challenges uh, with infertility as a much bigger victory against much bigger forces. So here is how her song goes. Uh, she reflects, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my strength is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many children pines away. The Lord raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. The Lord seats them with the princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. There's an irony here where the, what one thinks might be a meek prayer about child rearing, something uh, stereotypically in that world that would be uh, a woman's primary function uh, in life, where uh, it morphs from that into this powerful resistance edict against the enemies uh, and kingdoms and powers that oppose God. And she is able to see her victory over those forces that try to snuff out life. She sees her victory as part of God's overall victory over death and darkness and all of the oppressive forces in the world that stifle the life that God is, uh, that, that God is bringing forth. She is able to connect her work to God's work. Scholarship often argues that, that Hannah's song here is actually the central thesis of the whole book of 1 Samuel. Now think about that. This is a book that is about the, the rise of a kingdom in Israel and God using uh, prophets and various leaders to remind Israel 
that there will be forces both within Israel and outside of Israel that will use kingdom power to oppress and to deny and to kill and to stifle. But that God will always be faithful. God is the true king and God is God is all about life and victory over death. That story is encapsulated in Hannah's prayer here, a prayer on the surface about her being grateful for being pregnant. That, I think, should help us understand what's going on with Mary. Whereas the first two women we talked about were leaders, these last two, Hannah and Mary, are vulnerable women who are um, who would be marginalized uh, in their situations. In fact, scholars have pointed out that there is an uncanny similarity between Hannah's prayer and Mary's prayer, such that um, that Hannah's prayer is likely the backdrop in Luke's mind when he structures Mary's prayer. So now going back to Mary, um, now when we we can definitely see the, the similarities between Hannah's prayer and Mary's prayer, but the way Luke is setting up the story, there are also some uncanny similarities between Mary's song and the preaching that uh, somebody else will preach in uh, in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, you know you could say, well, who who is who else is listening to Mary's song that they would learn something from from what she's singing? And of course, it's this guy. So these uh, there are several connections that Luke explicitly makes uh, between um, Mary's song and Jesus's uh, preaching in in his ministry. So let's walk through some of those right now. Now, there's a the very famous Lord's Prayer that we prayed together uh, at Spark uh, every Sunday. And Mary's song and the Lord's Prayer both open with the acknowledgement that everything in their, in their speech is predicated on God being holy. So where Mary's song says, my soul glorifies the Lord, holy is God's name. The Lord's Prayer starts with Father, holy be your name. Uh, Mary's song later says, God has fulfilled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So this dramatic reversal. Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain says, blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied, but woe to you who are rich for you have already achieved your comfort. Mary's song says, God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain says, blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh, but woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. This reflected in all of the songs that we've heard so far and in Jesus's preaching is resistance literature. That song and that message from Jesus resonated with the marginalized and the oppressed all over Israel's history and really throughout history ever since Jesus uttered those words. That um, that resistance symbol of Mary's song is one that many um, oppressed minorities throughout the the world in various countries have used as a rallying cry to uh, throw off the chains of oppression and to stand up to unjust and oppressive governments. And we often fail to see Mary's song that way because of how far our upper middle class American ears are from the songs that the oppressed are singing. And it's a tragedy that that's the case. And it's not by accident that that's the case either. 
there was an author who who put it very well, Erna Kim Hackett, who um, in an article once once wrote, "White Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman." They are Peter, but never Judas. They are the woman anointing Jesus, but never the Pharisees. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For the citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when it is studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. And it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. So let's go back to that image of the flag that, uh, if you're like me, has caused you great tension and ambivalence for a very long time. Now, it's important to remember that when Jesus preached his message as putting the kingdom on notice, um, he was certainly uh, branded as unpatriotic in his context. Now, of course, Jesus embodied in his life a deep love for Israel. And I think it should help us too to keep that in mind that when we listen to these songs of resistance, that we we are not doing it out of hatred for for the kingdoms that we find ourselves in, but rather because of a love of justice. As the uh, um, hip hop artist Propaganda um, rightfully sings, I don't hate America, just a man she keep her promises. That is what it's about when, when Jesus and Mary and Hannah uh, and Deborah and Miriam find themselves uh, in these scenarios. It's important to remember too that um, when we reflect on how we uh, listen and express, uh, listen to the oppressed and express resistance against the powers, that singing the, via the songs that, that we've listened to today is just one way uh, of expressing that resistance. Many of us uh, here at Spark have been expressing resistance against injustice in lots of different ways, especially in the, in the last few months. You may have seen uh, a story circulating on uh, Instagram, being shared on Instagram, uh, a post that says, resistance is not a one-lane highway. Maybe your lane is protesting. Maybe your lane is organizing. Maybe your lane is counseling. Maybe your lane is art, activism. Maybe your lane is surviving the day. Do not feel guilty for, uh, for not occupying every lane. We need all of them. Another way that the Gospel of Luke would describe it uh, in not only Luke, but also in the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, which is the book of Acts, um, Luke actually showcases women who resist in many, many different ways, uh, much like the, the post on Instagram we just looked at. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, um, there are women who resist by singing, uh, women who resist by sitting and listening, or praying, or donating, or working, or preaching, or teaching, or testifying. Um, what is remarkable about the Gospel of Luke and Acts is that Luke not only showcases women who resist in all of these ways, not only does he center their voices and their actions, he says 
their names. He says who they are. In a world where histories barely even have female characters, he names them. He loves saying their names so much, he introduces us to four different women named Mary. When Luke tells the story of what women are doing, we realize all of the many ways that oppressed and marginalized people have always been resisting, if only we have ears to hear. In Luke and Acts, when women sing like Mary of Nazareth, kingdoms of this world feel resistance. When women sit and listen at Jesus' feet like Mary of Bethany, knowledge becomes power. When women pray like Elizabeth, God can get stuff done. When women donate like Mary of Magdala, Joanna, Susanna, and many others, Jesus can get stuff done. When women work, they, like Lydia, they sustain households and communities. When women preach, like Anna, the oppressed hear good news. When women teach, like Priscilla, men listen and learn. When women testify, like Mary and Mary and Joanna and others, when they testify about the risen Jesus, the world learns that Jesus is alive and that the powers of this world are going to die. I thank God that Jesus put it in Luke's well-educated, privileged male brain to use some of his platform to sing Mary's song and center these women. So what about us? What voices from the margins do we need to bring to the center? Who are they? What are their names? What truths are they speaking? What songs are they singing? Are we using our platforms to share their voices? Are we even listening? Those are all serious questions because even if we don't hear them, rest assured, God does. And God will do everything God needs to make things right. Lord have mercy on us when that day comes. We'll now use this time to reflect together on Jesus's uh, life-giving, death-killing victory uh, on the cross and over the tomb. And we do this uh, the way we we traditionally do at Spark as part of the the tradition of communion, um, where we um, reflect on Jesus's life, his death, his burial and resurrection uh, from the, the tradition that has passed down from the beginning. Um, where it goes, for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And of course, as always, all are welcome to the table.